This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, and welcome back once again to everything you wanted to know about physics, a new kind of podcast from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. I'm Dan Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're back answering Google's most popular search queries about physics with Professor Jim Alkalili. Now, in today's episode, we're going to wade into the great sea of mysteries in the world of physics. If you're starting here, and I don't blame you, please be sure to check out the previous four episodes where Jim explains the key concepts in the world of physics after you've listened to this one. But for now, here's what Jim has to say about time travel, multiple universes, and the search for a theory of everything. Okay, so let's talk about the stuff that's still left to figure out in physics, which, um, uh, you know, in some respects, it it seems like we figured out a lot. But then when you start to really think about it, it seems like there's still quite a long, long way to go. Um, the first one, which was the absolute um, highest searched thing that I found on Google, uh, and I'm sure you probably get this a lot in your talks as well, is is time travel possible yes i'm i'm sort of rather disappointed that uh, it's still the highest uh, search for um question on on google in terms of physics because i wrote a book on this 21 years ago and so people clearly are not reading my book otherwise they wouldn't have to ask this question but that's okay that's fine um i've, I've given a talk for many years to school kids uh, about time travel and i sort of i'll relate it to um you know science fiction movies doctor who um you know, so the, the, you know if you if you google time travel movies 
it's amazing just how many there've been over the years and and they've they vary very widely in their quality <laughs> so, some are intelligent um uh, and really smart and you think you know i remember um so what was it looper uh, which is a really great, great, great movie. It really, really gets you thinking, going back, and you know, and it sort of almost it's all sort of makes sense. And then you get others. Uh, what was that? Oh, hot tub time machine uh, is like, and, and believe it or not, there's a hot tub time machine too, which is which is two two hours of my life I will never get back. I don't know why I watched that to the end, but it was awful. Anyway. Um, so science fiction has tackled the question of time travel, but in real physics, it also is a valid area of research. Um, we have to divide it up into two. There's time travel into the future and time travel into the past. Time travel into the future is actually possible. Uh, and uh, and we know it. We do experiments all the time to show this because it relies on Einstein's theory of relativity. Einstein says, in fact, his two theories of relativity, his special theory the E equals MC squared one, the time is the fourth dimension one. Uh, he says that when something travels very close to the speed of light, its time will slow down. Um, I'm, I'm saying this very sort of broadly. I'm not getting into all the technical detail. But if you 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 fly off in a rocket and, and you're traveling at, say, 99% the speed of, of light, you, you travel around for two weeks of your time. Your, your spacecraft um, computer says, yep, two weeks have elapsed before you come back home. You zip around the galaxy. You could come back to Earth and find 100 years have gone by on Earth. Um, so because your clock has been running more slowly, uh, clocks on Earth have been running faster, and so there, more time would have elapsed on Earth. So essentially, you've, you've traveled close to the speed of light in your rocket, which has behaved like a time machine. You've got to the future. Another way in, this, in, in Einstein's general theory of relativity uh, is another way of slowing time down, which is with using gravity. Um, uh, the stronger gravity is, the slower time runs. Uh, we even see that on Earth. You know, that's how GPS clocks work. I talked about this in a previous episode, that you know, we have to slow down the atomic clocks on board uh, satellites um, artificially so they synchronize with the clocks on Earth because time is running slightly more quickly on the satellites because it's feeling weaker gravity. So the Earth's gravity slows time down, but if you really want to get to the future, if you really want to slow time down, you want to go and orbit around a supermassive black hole. It's the sort of thing that Matthew McConaughey does in Interstellar, which, by the way, is one of the best sci-fi movies covering time travel. Um, uh, so you can get to the future by slowing time down. Getting to the past, time travel to the past, is trickier, but not ruled out according to our current laws of physics. Einstein's general theory says theoretically, you could travel to the past. The reason most physicists uh, physicists don't think this is possible is because it leads to logical issues, going back and killing your younger self, so you never grow up to be a time-traveling murderer, and therefore you don't kill yourself, therefore you do go back and kill yourself, therefore, and so on. Um, so is time travel possible? Into the future, yes, by slowing time down. Into the past, maybe, according to our current theories, but there may be a loophole there that we have to close up to avoid these paradoxes. Brilliant. So the next thing is a, um, a really, really popular topic for us. Uh, whenever we cover it, um, readers really engage with it. We get loads of letters and ideas, and um, it definitely helps move the magazine off the shop shelves. Um, and that is the idea of a theory of everything. So... I'm going to just simply ask, what do we mean when we say, you know, a unified theory 
um, which we, we touched on a little bit, but um, it'd be great to go over again. Uh, why do we need one and how, how do we get there? We've discovered over the, the, the history of, 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 of physics, certainly the last few hundred years, that phenomena and concepts that on the face of it may seem not to be connected with each other end up being part of the same um, broader concept of phenomenon or law. Newton was the first person to discover this when he realised that the apple falling to the ground and the, the, the moon in orbit around the Earth are subject to the same force of gravity, and he came up with his universal law of gravity. So that's, in a sense, unifying two different concepts. Um, James Clark Maxwell unifies electricity and magnetism into electromagnetic theory. And over the course of uh, physics, we've done more and more of this. So Einstein unifies, unifies space and time. Uh, uh, Paul Dirac unified quantum mechanics with special relativity. And so gradually we sort of, these different branches describing very, very different phenomena are sort of merging together and, and giving us a, a, a simpler, I guess, picture of reality. So a unified theory is one that unifies different concepts and phenomena. When we talk specifically in particle physics of what's called a grand unified theory, a GUT, what we mean is unifying the forces of the subatomic world, bringing together electromagnetism, the weak force and the strong force, these are the nuclear forces, all into one theory. A grand unified theory doesn't include gravity, by the way, and that's still sitting out there. But in quantum mechanics, what we currently have, uh, what's called the standard model of particle physics, um, covers those three forces, but it's not really a grand unified theory because it doesn't connect them all up in, in, in one law, one equation. You still have to talk about the strong nuclear force separately from the weak nuclear force, for example. A theory of everything is one step beyond a grand unified theory. A theory of everything brings gravity into the fold as well. So it would one way of talking about it is saying it unifies quantum mechanics with Einstein's general theory of relativity. Another way of talking about a theory of everything is that it unifies the forces of nature, the four forces of nature. And we're still looking for such a theory of everything. Um, we're a long way, I think, from, from finding one. Now, we thought we were getting close. By the end of the 20th century, you know, people like Stephen Hawking were saying, you know, the end of theoretical physics is in sight. We're almost there. There was great hope for what's called string theory, super string theory. There are still many people working in string theory who believe that is the best possible hope for a theory of everything. Um, uh, and string theory is a theory of 10 dimensions and, and that particles are really vibrating strings. The mathematics is very beautiful. It's very powerful. But there are other physicists who are saying, look, you've been thinking about this for decades now. It may be very useful maths, very pretty maths. It might, might have helped us understand other things, but it doesn't look like it's going to lead to a theory of everything anytime soon. In any case, how would you even test it? So we are some way away from a theory of everything. But to, to address your final question, why do we think we need one? You know, why do we feel it's important to unify quantum mechanics and relativity? And if I get my way and thermodynamics as well, um, well, it's, you know, you think, well, maybe each works in its own domain. You know, if you're describing subatomic particles, you use quantum mechanics. If you're describing galaxies, you use general relativity. Uh, ne never the twain shall meet. But there are, um, 
ways of explaining why it's important. You know, Einstein says that space and time uh, uh, curve or are warped in the presence of matter. Now, if that matter happens to be a, a quantum particle, like an electron, which can be in a superposition of, say, being in two places at once, then each of those two places will, will, will have a tiny effect on the space-time around it. So space-time will, will also be put in a superposition. Therefore, there you have it. You've got space-time, that's general relativity, but you've also got quantum superposition, which is quantum mechanics. You need to bring those two ideas together in order to understand that concept. So it's not just a vanity project that we'd like to have one equation to stick on the T-shirt because it's neat and it's cool and we can show how clever we are. The laws of nature must be unified because there are, there are phenomena and examples where you can only understand them if you, if you bring together all the laws of physics. So it's not, not all about the merchandise. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to j- jump ahead a little bit here um, because this ties in quite nicely to something uh, you, you sort of uh, alight to in your book. Um, are, are, we, are we due what um, you, you sort of loosely describe as a, an Einstein moment? I, it's difficult to know. I mean, I think... W- we, 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 we feel that quantum mechanics is right. We feel that general, general relativity is right. Um, we're not going to overthrow them. We're not going to get rid of them. But in the same way that Newton's mechanics or, or Sir Newton's law of gravity is not wrong, it's just an approximation, Einstein came along with his general theory of relativity and said, no, it's Newton's idea of gravity as being this invisible force that just pulls stuff together, um, that acts instantaneously across distance. It's fine as an approximation, it works, but here's a better, more profound, more deep picture of, of what gravity really is. It may be that we need a similar revolution that will bring together the, the, our current understanding of quantum mechanics and relativity theory. So it was thought that maybe superstring theory was this, the Einstein moment. The, the, the person who maybe who possibly contributed most to this was the, is the American physicist Ed Witten. So Ed Witten uh, in the mid-90s came up with what we now call M-theory, um, which was a, a major advance. It was known as the second revolution in string theory, the first one being in the mid-80s. Uh, um, and it was thought that maybe Edwitton, you know, he, you know, he'd done what was needed to get to a theory of everything, but it hasn't led to the the success that many people hoped. So maybe we are still waiting for that that Einstein to come along and a, a revolution that won't overthrow relativity and quantum mechanics, but will just go beyond them to find a, a deeper explanation to reality. And maybe it's too difficult for humans. Maybe the next Einstein will be artificial intelligence. You know, maybe an algorithm is needed to to to, to solve such a difficult problem. Okay, um, so I'm going to move back into the realms of science fiction here, which uh, I suspect is what puts these uh, plants, these queries, so highly up the Google search rankings. Um, so the first one is uh, we we've, we've talked before about bubble universes and other universes are. Do, do we know or do we think there might be other universes out there? And if so, can we say how many? We think there might be other universes out there, yes. There, uh, uh, you, uh, I can even go as far as say, you know, many cosmologists believe that the multiverse exists. 
uh, and are very fond of that idea. But the words I'm using here, fond of the idea or believing it, that's not science. That's not, that's not physics. Believing something, as I might as well say, I believe there are fairies at the bottom of my garden. You know, that's, I don't have, you know, where's the scientific evidence for that? Um, there are reasons why a multiverse, a uh, higher dimension containing lots of universes, including our own, is an attractive concept. For example, um, we don't understand why the conditions in our universe are just right for matter to exist in the form that it does, in the form of atoms that can join together to make molecules, to make complex structures, including life, including us. So how come the ingredients of the universe are tweaked so perfectly to enable life to exist and contemplate the question in the first place? Um, it's, it's a difficult notion. I mean, if you have a religious faith, you say, well, you know, there's a, there's a, a supreme power, intelligence, divine creator who set the dials in the first place, whether or not that, that God intervenes in the meantime or just set dials going and then sat back and, 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 and admired his handiwork. Um, that's a way of explaining it away. But if for a physicist, particularly, you know, I mean, I'm not religious, so, but I think even those physicists who, who do have a faith, we want to try and understand the reasons why these things happen. Why is our universe so special? If the law of gravity was, the force of gravity was ever so slightly weaker than it is, then matter wouldn't have clumped together to form galaxies, then stars, then planets at all. If the electric charge on the electron was ever so slightly stronger, atoms wouldn't exist because electrons would just collapse into the nucleus. So everything is very, very delicately balanced. And you think, well, how come? You know, we live in a Goldilocks universe. And you're talking about the Goldilocks uh, uh, effect. You know, everything is just right. Like the, the porridge, baby bear's porridge is just right for Goldilocks. Our universe is just right for us. How come? Now, if you... Uh, think of the, the the lottery. If, say, one week, only one tick, lottery ticket, some random number, only one lottery ticket was was uh, was printed. They didn't bother printing any of the others. And then they carry out the draw, and that number comes out. I think, what what are the chances that the, the only there was only one ticket in existence, and that's the number that came out? That's what we feel like with our universe. Now, the multiverse idea. If there are lots and lots of universes around, then it's not surprising that at least one of them would be appropriate for life to exist and for us to be in it asking a question. With millions of lottery tickets printed, it's not surprising that one of them will have the, the, the number. You know, someone has to win. They may feel special, but there are lots of other people who didn't win. So there are lots of other universes, maybe in the multiverse, that have different forces of gravity, different speed of light, different charge on the electron, different fundamental constants. You know, there'd be universes that sort of formed in their own Big Bang, uh, but weren't appropriate, and they just collapsed in on themselves. Some universes expanded too quickly, nothing of interest happened within them. So the multiverse idea is attractive because it gets over this idea called the anthropic idea. How come our universe is so special? Well, maybe because it's not the only one. And then there are other ideas in cosmology that suggest maybe there's a multiverse. For example, there's, there's an idea called eternal inflation, uh, whereby um, our Big Bang is only, you know, a little sort of bubble appearing within a larger space. 
um, uh, and uh, you know, so inflation is continuing forever outside of our universe, and we've got these all bubble universes appearing uh, within this this field uh, that uh, that have their own existence, their own reality. The problem with the multiverse idea, attractive though it is, is that we still don't have any way of testing whether it's right or wrong. And many, many scientists, many physicists will say that is not proper science. If you can't falsify the theory, if you can't test it and verify it, then it's not a scientific theory. It's, it's the same as fairies at the bottom of my garden, however attractive that idea might be. The, the, the multiverse, not the fairies idea. You understand. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, and uh, moving on to another uh, sort of, uh, totem pole of of uh, science fiction um antimatter uh i hear about it all the time uh and it's in in every film set in the future they have lots of it to send them flying around space and galaxies and doing all sorts of incredible stuff um so back in the real world what is it and where is it antimatter sounds very exotic it sounds very sci-fi uh, and 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 therefore, a lot of people assume it's not real. It's not you know, antimatter is just a made up thing like warp drives. <laughs> but antimatter is real. It was predicted by Paul Dirac, an English physicist, in the late nineteen twenties, and um, it it was discovered a few years later. Antimatter essentially is is like normal matter, but it has the um, opposite properties. So the simplest example is the electron. Uh, a negatively charged particle orbiting in atoms, it has an antimatter partner called the positron. Why? Because from, from the name, it has positive electric charge. In other ways, it's identical to the electron. One has a, a negative, one has positive charge. Um, and and uh, most matter particles have an, their antimatter counterparts. Now, the thing is, the thing that also that, uh, that the people like Paul Dirac realized is that when you bring matter and antimatter together, all those opposite properties they have um, combine and cancel out. Their matter, their mass doesn't cancel out because antimatter still has mass. It still, as far as we can know, falls in ground. You drop a, part, a positron, it'll fall to the ground in the same way the electron will fall to the ground. So they both have, both have mass. But you bring them together and they, what we call, annihilate each other. Essentially what happens is that Einstein's equation, E equals mc squared, kicks in, and the stuff, the m, the matter, the combined matter of the electron and positron, turn into pure energy. The amount of energy, well, that's governed by this equation. Well, however much mass you have, this is the sum of the two masses of the particles, times that by the square of the speed of light, your c squared, and that gives you the amount of energy. So matter and antimatter will turn into pure energy. The opposite can also happen down at the quantum level. Pure energy can form matter as long as it also forms the equal amount of antimatter. So a photon, which is an, a, a particle of light energy, can transform into an electron and a positron. So it's creating matter out of nothing. And that's why we now, we don't talk about law of conservation of energy, we have to talk about law of conservation of mass and energy, because matter and energy are interchangeable in this way. If people think it's science fiction, well, I can just rem remind um, listeners that anyone who's ever been into a hospital and had a PET scan, PET 
stands for positron emission tomography. Positrons, particles of antimatter. So if you go and have a PET scan, what's happening is that you are injected with these uh, uh, radio uh, uh, nucleides, the, the radioactive material, um, which the, the, the nuclei of these radioactive um, atoms spit out positrons. They spit out antimatter particles. Now, that positron doesn't travel very far before it hits an electron. They annihilate. They, they create two photons of light, which head off back to back and are captured in this um, scanner in these de uh, photon detectors and what you can do then is track back the, tra the the tracks of these where these photons came from and pinpoint where that positron hit the electron which was round about the place where that nucleotide was was uh, was uh, found itself within this within a cell and so that's the way you image things so you image things like our brains using particles of antimatter it's that's not science fiction that's that's very important medicine Brilliant. Okay, last question. Um, uh, you've, you've you've touched on dark energy and, and dark matter and explained uh, what they are quite well, I think. Um, can you tell me, uh, as a as a journalist, um, it always feels like we are a decade away from finding it, from finding this this force and this matter that is ripping the universe apart. Well, uh, we, we always have to be careful between dark energy and dark matter, because although the, you know, the word dark is there, n neither of them, you know, I think the word dark is not really suitable for either concept. Dark matter probably would be better called invisible matter. And dark energy, well, that's just, that's just it, it's meaningless. You know, I think at the time when it was discovered just over 20 years ago, there was always sort of like competition within physics as to what, to what to call it. I would have preferred to call it quintessence, which was a lovely, lovely word, that, but that didn't stick. D dark energy, we're sort of getting closer to trying to understand its origins, its nature. It's down to what's called the quantum vacuum. But I think when you talk about we're always 10 years away, I think that's referring to dark matter and dark energy is ripping the universe apart. It's pushing everything, causing space to expand ever more quickly. Dark matter. No, dark matter has a, a gravitational pull. It's attractive. It's like normal matter. The thing is, we don't know what it's made of. We know it's out there because there's some invisible stuff out in space that's causing matter to be, to, to move in a certain way, actually even bending light because gra gravitational, we now know from Einstein that gravity is basically the curvature of space-time. And so light beams, light from distant galaxies, gets bent by gravitational fields. And sometimes you see light being bent in a way that can't be accounted for by the matter that you can see. So you say, okay, there must be invisible stuff out there that's causing that light to bend. We also know, know that dark matter is necessary to hold galaxies together. So we know it's there because we can see its gravitational effect but we don't know what it's made of. It's clearly not made of any of the particles we already know about. So it must be made of something else. And so for many years now, we've been trying to understand what its constituents are. And it's a bit like nuclear fusion. You're right. It's always, you know, 10 years away. We're building ever more elaborate, ever more sensitive instruments to try and capture it. If dark matter, if it's made of particles, which we think it should be, then those particles should be streaming through the earth all the time. They're, they're, they, they see the earth as transparent because dark matter doesn't interact with normal matter other than via gravity. 
Uh, and at the particle level, that's that's not going to have much effect. So we're still, nevertheless, designing instruments that might try and capture every now and again one of these particles of, of dark matter. Um, we're trying to make them in places like the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, and so far, we still haven't found them. There are candidates. There's like half a dozen different types of hypothetical particles that fit the bill that uh, we're still, you know, but we still don't, still don't know which one. I, I wrote a, a novel a couple of years ago called Sunfall in which I suggested that uh, it's set in 2041. So I said, by that point, so just over 20 years from now, we will have discovered dark matter and it plays a big role in, in, my, uh, in my story. Uh, and I suggest that dark matter is made of particles called neutralinos, which are a type of particle called supersymmetric particles, which may be candidates for dark matter. And I was sort of worried that uh, either neutralinos would be ruled out before my book came out or that they would be discovered before my book came out. Either way, I wouldn't be so proud. So, but all the time it's possible, I could be I could be like Arthur C. Clarke, you know, sort of pr- presciently predicting the future if it turns out I was right. <laughs> OK, brilliant. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to our new podcast. If you've enjoyed the last few episodes, please make sure you subscribe because the next episode is a special one. In the sixth and final episode, we're going to answer your questions sent to us on Twitter and via email. Of course, if you want to send us more questions for the next and future episodes, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Science Focus. Also, if you can spare a minute, please do leave us a review. We love your feedback and we want to know what subjects you want us to handle next. And of course, if you want more primers on the big ideas in science, head to our website, sciencefocus.com, or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And if you want to dive deeper into any of the topics covered, then Professor Jim Al-Khalili's new book, The World According to Physics, published by Princeton University Press, is the perfect place to start. It's a concise introduction to the most important ideas in physics now. And Jim is a wonderfully clear writer who takes the grandest of ideas and makes them simple to understand. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. This podcast has been created by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. If you've enjoyed listening, why not try out our magazine? In the next few issues, we've got a special report coming up on the progress towards a coronavirus vaccine. We've got a piece by Steve Brusatte, one of the world's leading paleontologists, on the mammals that thrived among the dinosaurs. And we'll be taking a deep dive into the space mission that will fly a helicopter on Mars. So, if you don't want to miss out, we've got a couple of special offers for you. First off, if you're used to buying your magazines from the shops, you can get your next three issues delivered to your home without needing to set up a direct debit. And you'll still save on the shop price. Or, if you're happy to set up a direct debit, we can offer you even more savings. And your first six issues will be just $9.99. Pick up what works for you, by visiting www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash science focus spring podcast offer. That's www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash science focus spring podcast offer.